I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations, and I've got just one thing to say. Thank goodness for John Kelly. I bet that's not the one thing you expected me to say, but here's why. With Kelly so much in the news for the Rob Porter disaster, inexplicable non-existent security clearances, rudely insulting the congresswoman who supported a gold star widow from Georgia, insulting the Dreamers, his supposed role as a so-called adult in the room for all those reasons and more, people are actually aware of and talking about what is arguably the most important White House job after, of course, the top one. That's chief of staff. I mean, before Kelly, if I wanted you to turn off this podcast right now, I'd tell you that today I talked with the author of a book positioned as the ultimate analysis of the historical role of the chief of staff to the president of the United States. But that characterization vastly shortchanges the terrific appeal and importance of Chris Whipple's outstanding book, The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. After all, how much of a political junkie do you have to be to care about the tactical approach of Hamilton Jordan or Mac McClarity or Ken Duberstein? This book is so much more than that. This book is less a how-to than a how-it-happened. It's storytelling theater, political inside baseball at the high and low points of history. It's a fun and fascinating read. It's also a work of history. You're there when Ronald Reagan opens the door of his Pacific Palisades home two days after the 1980 election and warmly welcomes his former political enemy, James Baker, as his new chief of staff. You're there when Chief of Staff Donald Rumsfeld gets Gerald Ford to let him hire his new deputy, despite the two DWI arrests young Dick Cheney had. And, most relevant to right now, you'll hear thoughtful analysis about why, in Chris Whipple's opinion, having studied four decades of how White Houses both function and fail, why the Trump White House is so dysfunctional in how it runs. As you may know, Whipple is the guy who got the first on-the-record interview with Reince Priebus after Priebus left the White House. Whipple brings these incredible historical moments to life, making them feel like little movies, which makes sense, because making movies is a big part of what Chris does for a living. Whipple is a writer, journalist, documentary filmmaker, and speaker, a multiple Peabody and Emmy award-winning producer at CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Primetime. He's the chief executive officer of CC Whip Productions. Most recently, he was the executive producer and writer of Showtime's The Spy Masters, CIA in the Crosshairs. But before I begin the conversation with Chris, I want to remind you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report. Now that we've hit the primary season, is that pending Democratic wave still forming? What's next on immigration, tariffs, and more? And what's in store for the next stage of congressional map drawing? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News's Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. And one other ask before we begin. Thank you again to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. I'm really grateful. It makes a big difference in helping others find the podcast. So, if you like these conversations, you know my ask. I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and, if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. 
As always, though, you know my parallel ask. If you don't like the conversations, well, thank you for still listening. And please just forget I ever mentioned the whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Chris Whipple. Chris, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Good to be here. So a whole book on the role of chief of staff. I mean, when will we ever see a chief of staff in the news? I mean, creating controversy or insulting congresswomen or fighting with the president. I mean, come on, man, that's not going to happen. Are you sure you picked the right topic for a book? Well, you know, the, the shocking thing to me is that uh, nobody beat me to it. Yeah. You know, when, you, when you consider that uh, the White House chief of staff, according to James A. Baker III, who was Reagan's quintessential chief, uh, is the second most powerful job in government. Dick Cheney, who ought to know, says that the uh, White House chief has more power than the vice president. What Cheney doesn't often add is that that's true except when Cheney was vice president. <laughs> but um, Well, he knew, was, he knew how to fix it. Uh, you know, having been chief of staff, he, he knew, okay, I, I may not be able to take the you know, president out of, out of the way, but I, I know what to do with the, you know, how to get the chief of staff out of the way. Cheney knew his way around the levers of power, that's for sure. And uh, it's a great story in the book, I think, is the, the relationship between uh, Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney way back in the day when – Cheney succeeded Rumsfeld as, a, as Jerry Ford's 34-year-old White House chief of staff. And, of course, the book goes all the way forward through uh, John Kelly. And, um, in fact, the paperback, which came out yesterday, Tuesday, March 6, has uh, a new chapter, as you know, about uh, with the first interviews with Reince Priebus about his six months. Uh, and I cover the, the first year uh through through Priebus and Kelly, it's a it's a cast of characters that you know Aaron Sorkin couldn't have dreamed up. No, you know? he he really he he could not have. And you're you know you you obviously you're you're a documentarian among other things, and and you've created you know done movies and and your storytelling ability. Um, I, I mean, I, I really feel the, characterizing this as purely an exploration of the role of chief of staff. Um, that's not, you know, that's a, a tenth of what the book is. It's characters and tales and, you know, seen through the eyes of the chiefs of staff. Um, but really something, and yes, the story that you were just referring to, uh, you know, Dick Cheney becoming chief of staff and even the story before that, how, you know, Rumsfeld worked with Ford and got Ford to approve Cheney, even though he'd been, uh, he had the two W, uh, DWIs and, and I think jail time as well, right? Hadn't yeah, he? This is a guy, Cheney, who never should have passed a, an FBI background check. You know, he, uh, not only had he flunked out of college twice, but he was, he had he had a number of DWIs and uh, and Rumsfeld uh, went to Ford and said, "Hey, you know this guy could be a problem." And Jerry Ford said, "Do you want him?" And Rummy said, "Yeah, I do." And Rum and Ford said, "That's good enough for me." And uh, the rest is history. So that relationship began in the Ford White House. Cheney will talk to you all day long uh, about that experience as. First deputy to Rumsfeld and then Jerry Ford's chief of staff during his last year that he had the time of his life. Cheney did uh, as 
Ford's chief, loved Jerry Ford, loved that whole period. when Loved him. It, he loved it. It totally came across in the book. It, it, it made me think differently about Ford. He loved him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he'd, he'd much rather talk to you about that period of his life than uh, <laughs> as, than as, as W's, George W.'s vice president. Uh, yeah. Go figure. Yeah, yeah uh, go figure. Those were the days when he said we were young enough and foolish enough to think that we could run the country. Uh, and and they did. They really were young. I mean, his that that struck me as well. I mean, his age, um, Hamilton Jordan. Uh, you know, even pre his becoming chief of staff, um, uh, uh, um, Wilson, Jack Wilson, uh, for Carter as well. It, it, yeah, and, and others. Yeah. Yeah, very young. There's this thing going around. You may have seen it, uh, you know, on the internet recently, showing it's really about the uh, in reference to the Parkland um, high school students and how young they are, and and but the change that they're making, and it's showing the ages of the founding fathers, um, you know, and, and how young Alexander Hamilton was, and and others. You may have seen this going around the internet. And I'm I'm not saying that any of uh, you know the previous chiefs of staff were were Alexander Hamilton, um, but they were young. And and they really were at the center of power at very very young ages. And Cheney was uh, it's it's a great story because Cheney at the time was believe it or not maybe the most popular guy in town. Everybody loved Dick Cheney when he was Ward's chief of staff. He was his politics his ideology was as somebody put it even in those days to the right of Genghis Khan, <laughs> and yet. He was an honest broker of information, which is what the chief of staff must be if you're a good one. And Cheney never put his thumb on the scale. He was he was the guy you wanted in the room when you had a a, a fight, an argument about uh, policy. He was the guy who helped everybody reach consensus. He the press corps loved him. He was a practical joker. He had this self-effacing sense of humor and um Ever since, White, all the White House chiefs have been looking at one another and saying, whatever happened to that guy? Um, but I can tell you, he, he still does have a very wry sense of humor, whether you whether you like Cheney or loathe him. Uh, that 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 came across as well. So I want to I want to turn first, I guess, to the present. And yes, as you indicated, you uh, um, secured that interview uh, or interviews. I don't know if you met with him more than once. I know, I guess, once in a uh, yeah, slightly more. empty restaurant, you said in, in the book you met with Priebus, but uh, I don't know if you talked with them more than that. Uh, so I want to get to that. I want to get to the White House, and then maybe we'll go back in the history. But just for the context, um, talk about I mean, the research that you did, 18 chiefs of staff, um, uh, two presidents, uh, I think there was four of something else. But give the give me, you know, 60 seconds on the context of, um, you know, the, what you studied, the history and, and how that framed your view of what is the role of the chief, chief of staff. Well, you know, this whole thing began with a phone call out of the blue from a stranger, uh, a filmmaker named Jules Naudet, and he and his brother Gideon had done the iconic film 9-11. They wanted to know if I would partner with them on a film about a documentary about the White House Chiefs of Staff. And we did it in 2013. Uh, it took a while, but we, we persuaded every living chief to sit down and do interviews. Uh, but I thought even though that was a four-hour documentary on the Discovery Channel that it barely scratched the surface of this unbelievable untold story 
of, at that time, 17 White House chiefs who really make the difference between success and disaster for every presidency. So I went back and I and I sat down with almost all of them again uh, to go deeper. I wanted the surrounding characters, the secondary characters. I wanted to talk to the presidents, two of whom I, I spoke with. Uh, I happened to be doing a film on the CIA called The Spy Masters for Showtime, so I talked to all the living CIA directors as well. Mm. Uh, national Security Advisors, Secretaries of State, um, went as deep as I could. And, um, and the extraordinary overarching thing I came away with, uh, among a lot of other things, uh, is this. Every president learns, often the hard way, that you cannot govern effectively without empowering a White House chief of staff as first among equals in the White House to execute your agenda and, most importantly, tell you what you don't want to hear. So that, that segues, uh, you know, not terribly uh, to the current White House. Um, you, you've been fairly critical, very critical about uh, the, the, the Trump, the functioning of the Trump White House. Um, what's your what, what's your characterization of it? And what does that have to do with a chief of staff? He's had two. Well, you know, to put it in perspective, uh, let's rewind to December 2016. This is a scene that I describe in the new chapter of my paperback. Uh, and it's really extraordinary. Ten former White House chiefs of staff came to the White House at the invitation of the outgoing chief, Obama's chief, Dennis McDonough. And they sat around a table and to give Wrights Priebus their best advice. Priebus came. Uh, they, uh, all the chiefs told him they, they were all in agreement that he had to be empowered, as I mentioned before, uh, to do the job. He had to have the authority to do the job. They all advised him. They gave him other advice as well. Uh, at one point, Barack Obama walked into the room. Everybody stood up. Uh, and Obama looked at his former chiefs and then looked at Priebus and said, every one of these guys said, told me things that pissed me off. Um, and they weren't always right. Sometimes I was right. But that's the most important thing that a chief of staff can do. And I hope you will do it for President Trump. And with that, he departed. Um, the White House chiefs left, uh, virtually every one of them came away from this meeting with Priebus, uh, essentially saying to themselves, good luck, Godspeed, God help him. Uh, but this is virtually mission impossible. Given the nature of this president, Donald Trump, uh, who is intellectually and temperamentally unfit for office, as we've learned over the last year, if we didn't know it before. And Priebus was just ill-equipped to tell Donald Trump hard truths. Now, maybe nobody can tell Trump what he doesn't want to hear, but certainly Priebus failed to do so in his first six months. Um, and um, I don't quite frankly think that John Kelly has done any better. And to some extent, Kelly's failure is the more glaring because he was empowered in a way that Priebus was not. Yeah, he, he was given that uh, power. At least that's what we were all led to believe. And, and I'll ask you about Kelly in a moment. Going back to Priebus, first of all, that, that meeting uh, um, that McDonough held and, and, you know, of course, you open the book with the uh, meeting that, that Josh Bolton 
uh, Bush's uh, chief of staff had, um, and, and those are extraordinary meetings, these collections of, uh, you know, a dozen or so former chiefs of staff, and you can just imagine the, the storytelling that goes around there. Um, but but in this McDonough one, in the one with Priebus, um, you write, uh, they were pretty harsh. Uh, one of the former Republican chiefs of staff called Priebus uh, clueless. Um, they did not come away, did not sound, from from your writing, I, my takeaway, they didn't come away feeling uh, impressed with Priebus. Is that right? No, that's true. That's true. Um, you know, Priebus was, by all accounts, very successful as uh, RNC, running the RNC. He, he raised a lot of money. Um, he, he ran it well. Um, for whatever reason, he he just was ill-suited um, as Trump's White House chief of staff. And again, it's a tall order for anybody. But um, but Priebus is the chiefs of staff that I spoke to, and, and especially the Republican ones who were who wanted to help uh, and, and wanted to, to give him a, a chance, uh, really came away feeling that Priebus just didn't didn't understand the nature of the beast. Um, that he hadn't given enough thought to creating the infrastructure that every White House chief has to have. Uh, he, he seemed kind of oblivious to some of them. Um, one of them said he seemed he had the attitude of a personal aide and cruise director. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not a kind assessment. No, it was harsh. Well, why and, do you, Yeah, go on, quite, go on. Quite frankly, Priebus... Um, you know, it, it bore that out, bore that prediction out. I mean, he he really failed to to uh, stand up to Trump and uh, tell him hard truths. Why did he agree to talk to you, and why did he agree to uh, later let you put his comments on the record? You know, I think I think Priebus cared about his place in history. I, I think he he cared about the fact that um, I'd, I'd interviewed all the other White House chiefs, uh, many of them, several of them. Uh, spoke to him about the experience and and I guess persuaded him that I'd been fair and um, so we met uh, and and the first we we had several lengthy sit downs and the first one was completely off the record um, so was the second one and it was a painstaking process of then persuading Priebus to put comments on the record He's still extremely sensitive about his uh, relationship with Donald Trump. He wishes Trump well. I don't think he wants to offend Donald Trump. So he was nervous about it. So it was a it was a painstaking process. But at, at the end of the day, um, I think he was quite revealing. And the first thing he said to me off the record, which he later agreed to put in the book, was uh, take everything you've heard and multiply it by 50. Yeah, yeah, that was extraordinary. That that's a that was a powerful line. Um, this is slightly off point, but when reading it in in your book, uh, it, you know, it it had stood with me and with all of us when it happened, and then seeing it in the book, um, it just made me want to ask more. You you write about the cabinet meeting, the one we've all cringed over, um, where as you write, Trump's cabinet quote virtually competed to see who could be more obsequious. Priebus won hands down, declaring what a blessing it was to serve the president. Um, did you ask Priebus about that, why he did it, and is he embarrassed by it at all? Well, you know, that's a that's a very good question. And, and it, you know, it's one thing that we didn't really get into was that was that particular cabinet meeting. Um, 
And um, so that it, it'll be a good follow-up if I for the for the next chapter if I do one. Um, I think that um, Priebus is a puzzling guy because um, you know on the one hand he 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 does apparently care about his place in history or he wouldn't have sat down and talked with me. Um, but I, I don't get the sense that he's terribly embarrassed by that or or some of the other. Uh, ritual humiliation that Donald Trump subjected him to. Um, you know, at one point, the fly he, swatting. Yeah, he asked him to swat a fly. I mean, yeah. vintage Trump, and and no one with any self respect would uh, acquiesce to that. Um, I wouldn't, um, but it doesn't seem to. Uh, affect Priebus's opinion of Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I've wondered about that. Did Trump give him a, a fly swatter, or did he just expect Priebus to, to run around with, uh, you know, smack it with his hands? Never, I've never seen that detail about, you know, what did, uh, what did Priebus actually use? Yeah. So, uh, you know, until, uh, up until now, if you'd asked me who was the least effective White House chief in modern history, of course, I, I trace the development of the modern White House chief from, from Haldeman. Yes. Uh, Haldeman, Haldeman uh, went to jail. You might, you, might, you might think that he'd be the cinch as the worst White House chief. But my choice would actually be Don Regan, uh, who was Ronald Reagan's second hapless White House chief of staff. It's no coincidence that the Iran-Contra scandal happened on his watch, in my opinion. Never would have happened on his predecessor's watch. Uh, yeah, incredible, incredible contrast to how Baker ran things as chief of staff. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And, of course, as Nancy Reagan famously said of Don Regan, uh, he liked the chief part of the title, <laughs> uh, but the staff part of the title, not so much. And, and James Baker has a theory about that, and it's a good one, I think. He says that people who have been so-called principals who, who have been governors or CEOs, um, people with a lot of power, executive authority. Uh, Regan was a former co-chairman of Merrill Lynch, tend to be bad choices as White House chief because you have to remember at the end of the day, your staff, you have to. And, and Regan was imperious. He was arrogant. He was clueless. He was... Um, he liked to be announced when he entered a room, ladies and gentlemen, the chief of staff of the United States, all rise. Uh, you know, it was pathetic. Um, and quite frankly, I, I'm afraid that John Kelly shares some of those attributes. Uh, I think Kelly is arrogant. I think he's politically inept. Um, I think that his, uh, his appearance in the White House press briefing room when he um, made up that story about Representative Wilson, yeah, uh, his insults to the Dreamers, his uh, you know his tendency to refer to everyone on Capitol Hill as an idiot, um, it, it reminds me a little of Don Regan. Interesting. So, so is that maybe what's gone? Because that is one of my questions. What what's gone wrong? Because he, he on, on the one hand, Kelly seems to have a lot of the prerequisites on paper. He was, we believe, we we've been told that we, the public, have been told that he was given the power to you know organize things, to limit traffic, to organize the handling of documents, etc. Uh, he seems to have. He's got an organizational background. One would think, four star Marine general, and and you know he, he ran the Southern Command. Uh, 
all of that. And yet, um, politically, I don't know if it's politically or or just as you know his own humanness, something um, clearly uh, is getting in the way. Clearly, and he was given much more authority than than Reince Priebus, um, and which makes his failure the, the more glaring, in my view. He, um, you know, Steve Bannon talked to me about about Priebus and about Kelly, and he was very dramatic on the subject of Kelly. He said, you know, John Kelly represents Fred Trump reaching from beyond the grave. John Kelly is the son Fred Trump wished he'd had. Gary Cooper, you know, no nonsense. Well, all right, so that's that's Bannon's um, overwrought um, description, but it but it represents it, it, it does reflect the awe with which Donald Trump tends to hold generals. So on the one hand, he has this tremendous respect for generals. Um, and yet Kelly, you know, while he might have had might have the gravitas, in my view, just has just has failed to use it. I mean, he's he he famously said that he wasn't put on this earth to uh, manage the president. He was only he was just going to make the West Wing more efficient and manage the paper flow uh, to Donald Trump. But number one, telling the president hard truths, telling him what he doesn't want to hear is the most important part of the job, uh, as James Baker or Leon Panetta will tell you. And number two, Kelly has failed even in his own very narrow description of the job, as we've as we've now seen, you know, with with a staff secretary functioning as uh, performing um, that role without a security clearance for more than a year, 30 other people without staff clearances, uh, um, chaos in the West Wing now that that rivals, you know, the most dysfunctional days under Priebus. Um, Kelly's failed on, on almost every level as White House chief of staff, I would say. And and most importantly, perhaps, he's failed politically. He's failed, um, you know, every Donald Trump is not the first president to take office full of hubris, thinking he's the smartest guy in the room, intoxicated with his political victory. Most presidents get over it. Most presidents ultimately learn that you have to govern. You can't just campaign all the time. And it's the chief of staff's job to help the president do that. And I think Kelly has simply reinforced all of Trump's worst partisan instincts. Is is there is there any chief of staff that you've studied that you think would have had the best possible chance of making uh, Trump work? Well, now we're off into a such a hypothetical yeah. realm that's that it's hard hard to answer that question. And and for well, all the I, I could also ask you, you know, who's a better baseball hitter, Joe DiMaggio or Carly Stremsky? I mean, we, we could go. I mean, we go all sorts of hypotheticals. But yeah, but exactly. yes, yes, it's hypothetical. But you, you, surely you thought about it a little bit. Yeah, and, and it's it's for all the reasons we've discussed, um, it may well be mission impossible to be uh, to, to try to function effectively as as Donald Trump's White House chief. Uh, but having said that, um, you know the two best I think in modern history were James A. Baker III under Reagan and Leon Panetta yeah. uh, under Bill Clinton, and those were guys who were comfortable in their own skin. They had nothing to prove. They'd been around the block. Uh, they knew Capitol Hill. They knew the White House. 
But most importantly, they could walk into the Oval Office, close the door and tell Reagan or Clinton um, what they didn't want to hear. And that's the toughest part of the job. Those guys were great at it. And, um, you know, without James Baker, I think there's a good chance there would not have been a Reagan revolution. Without Leon Panetta, I'm not sure Bill Clinton would have had a second term. That's how critical a chief of staff can be. Yeah, th- those were the two that were, were coming to my mind. It certainly, you know, it'd be interesting fantasy. You know, there's fantasy baseball. It'd be fantasy, you know, interesting fantasy politics to to think about how either one of those two would work in this White House. L- let me ask you, this This struck me, and, and I want you to just tell me if, if I'm off, but I, I was, I mean, the book, the book is such a remarkable, I, I really was struck. I mean, characterizing this purely as a look at, you know, the role of the chief of staff is truly, it's just a part of what this book does. Your storytelling and the history and retelling of the moments. And, and it was interesting earlier in this conversation for you to really run through all of the people that you talked to and how they, you know, the interviews that you did for the CIA show, um, you know, played into it because it all comes together and, and comes alive. So in reading your descriptions of the Carter White House and how Jimmy Carter played the role of his own chief of staff for a while, um, it, it, parts of it connected to me and, and stay with me if you would please. Uh, but then also, of course, just tell me if you think I'm off my rocker. Um, it, some of it kind of sounded connected to me with Trump. And, and here's why. Um, obviously, Trump uh, has chiefs of staff, um, but everything seems to come back to him. Nothing seems to get vetted, you know, outside of Trump. Trump um, isn't correcting typos like Jimmy Carter, um, because, well, as, as you, you know, you give the highlight, the, the detail that while Carter would read Brzezinski's 150-page memos, um, you know, we've been told, on the other hand, that, that Trump doesn't read. But that sense that there's no effective gatekeeping and that everything comes back to that one um, person, do, do you see any parallels in that? You know, obviously very, very different, you know, situations and mindsets, et cetera. Um, but, but did you see any parallels or am I reading too much into it? No, I do. I do. I, and in fact, but start with the caveat that you, two people could not be less alike, yeah. more dissimilar than Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump, because Jimmy Carter, uh, of course, was one of the most intelligent presidents ever elected. Um, uh, and, and, and certainly maybe the most intelligent of the 20th century he was trained as a nuclear engineer. Uh, Donald Trump does not read. Donald Trump has absolutely no idea um, even what he's for or against, much less how to govern. Um, so uh, completely dissimilar. But but in this sense, I think Carter, there, there's a real similarity because Carter, for all his intelligence, um, thought he was smart enough to run the White House by himself. Um, let's do a contrast with Ronald Reagan. Um, Reagan was once, unlike Carter, described as an amiable dunce. Well, that was unfair to Reagan. But Reagan understood something that neither Carter nor Trump understood. And that is that an outsider president needs a consummate insider, um, in, in his case, James A. Baker III, to to get things done on Capitol Hill and to uh, tell you what you don't want to hear. Um, Carter went for two and a half years without 
a White House chief of staff. Ham Jordan was sort of the de facto chief. Um, but Carter when he thinks, when he wasn't sleeping in his car, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Ham Jordan was just it was a brilliant political strategist. He he wrote this famous um, memo about how to how to how to take this peanut farmer and make him president, uh, which is a classic. And he was a brilliant, brilliant campaign strategist, uh, a terrible chief of staff, didn't want the job, was <laughs> ill-suited to it, disorganized, you know, sometimes slept in his car. Um, he, he was the last guy you wanted as White House chief. But but he, the point is that Carter went for two and a half years thinking he could run the White House himself. It wasn't until two and a half years in that he finally appointed a chief. He pointed the wrong guy and Ham Jordan. He finally got it right in his last year as president when he made Jack Watson his White House chief. Um, history might have been different if Jack Watson had been White House chief on day one. He was smart, organized, whip smart, organized, uh, former Marine, um, intelligent about uh, policy, uh, savvy politically, and and during that last year of Carter's presidency, boy, it, you know, the, the, the White House really ran effectively. At that point, it was too late for Jimmy Carter. So Donald Trump shares um, a little bit of that. Certainly, you know, certainly with Carter, he he shares that arrogance, the, the, the idea that he's he's so smart that um, he can run the White House himself. Um, you know, this. He's he's referred to Kelly as a another nut job who thinks he's running things. Um, well, <clears throat> you know, Trump is going to at one point I said, and I think it was on one of my earlier appearances uh, during the book tour, that if if Donald Trump wants to be Jimmy Carter, he should just keep doing exactly what he's doing oh. and he will be a one term president. Interesting. Yeah. So you did. You had thought about that. So, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, a couple questions just to to close out. I think I know the answer to this one. I think you've said it already. I, um, the, the the best chiefs uh, chief of staff and, and the worst, or the best chiefs and the the worst, um, are the best Panetta and Baker and the worst uh, Hamilton Jordan. Well, you know, or you Ray, have, Regan too, I guess. You know, certainly. Um, let me expand it a little bit because um, I'm t- always talking about Baker and Panetta and and and. The reasons we've discussed, they were among the very best, probably maybe the two best. Uh, but there are some other really, really good ones. Uh, Dick Cheney was a was a terrific White House chief under Jerry Ford. Uh, Ken Duberstein was a terrific White House chief, uh, Reagan's last chief, who uh, helped to extricate him from the Iran Contra scandal by again by telling Reagan what he did not want to hear that you have to give this speech you have to apologize um, I think that uh, Erskine Bowles was a terrific White House chief uh, you know absolutely um, efficient and organized and, and focused and helped to keep Clinton focused through the Monica Lewinsky scandal um, so uh, you know and and so there are there are a number of good ones um, on the on the on the minus side, um, certainly Ham Jordan, Don Regan, and uh, you know I'm I'm sorry to say because I, I like him, but Reince Priebus is a contender. If you look at the first six months of this presidency, uh, and you got to put John Kelly in the running as well. 
Yeah. You, you know, when you were just saying, uh, fellow, you could tell from your tone that it was going to be someone that you liked. And yes, I can see Reince Priebus. I, I've never met him, but I could see how he's, you know, probably a very nice guy. I thought you were maybe also going to say Mac McClarity, who I think you described as the nicest guy in Washington or somebody described as the, the nicest guy in Washington. Yeah. Mac McClarty, um, universally, uh, beloved, um, and, uh, you know, maybe not cut out for the the brutality and the ruthlessness of uh, Washington. Uh, tremendously successful, very uh, businessman, very bright. A uh, little bit of a fish out of water in Washington, but but boy, if you compare the uh, the, the, the year and a half or so McClarty had with uh, Priebus or Kelly, um, you know, the, the McClarty had a had a hell of a run. Um, so I wouldn't put him in their, in their category by any means. Very good. And just to close out, Chris, why has a woman never held a job? Well, think about it for a minute. I mean, how many female presidents have we had? How many female campaign managers for that matter? Um, maybe two that I can think of, uh, Susan Estrich and Donna Brazile. Um, that it'll change. Uh, I don't think the day is coming for sure. Um, but uh, we, we may have to wait a little while. Chris, thank you. Thank you uh, for the time and the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for the kind words about the gatekeepers. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Chris Whipple. I think you could tell I really enjoyed the book. And didn't I tell you what a great storyteller he is? My thanks to Chris for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.